you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, we're going to be looking at a, a famous passage that um, some of you are very familiar with, uh, and I look forward to uh, preaching it to you this morning. But as I dove into this passage and studied it, for those of you that are Transformer fans, uh, there is more to it than meets the eye. So if you would read along with me in Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 30, and then I'll pray for the preaching of God's Word. This is God's Word to you this morning. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is it like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates? We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, come here, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Would you pray with me for the preaching of God's Word? Father, it is good to be with your people this morning. It is good to be in your presence and to know that you are here with us. You have called us out of this world to come and to worship you and to proclaim that we are your people and you are our God and to thank you for everything you've done in our lives. Everything that comes our way is through your hand and we're thankful for it. Father, we pray this morning as we engage this, your word, that we would hear of you, that we would learn more about who you are and what you're doing in our lives. And Father, as we always pray, we pray that we would be different as we leave this sanctuary this morning because we learned of you and we met with the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I love sports. I've always loved sports. I grew up playing sports my whole life. 
But there's one aspect of sports that intrigues me the most, and that is sports gambling. Now, I'm not here to confess to you this morning that I gamble with sports, so don't worry. But I am massively intrigued by this arena that kind of covers over sports, that engages people that know nothing about sports. If you know anything about the NFL, the NFL about 15 years ago took off because of sports gambling and the Internet. It is the most popular sport because of sports gambling and the Internet. And as I engaged this arena of sports gambling, uh, and I researched it, there's one thing that really intrigued me. And that is, how is it that these people in Las Vegas that set the lines for these games are so accurate in setting the lines? If you pay attention to sports gambling at all, you'll realize how close they are in deciding who's going to win the game and how much they win the game by. You know, is it three points? Is it two points? Is it seven points? Is it 30 points? They set these lines... And if they're not right on, they're very close, which makes those that bet on the game, uh, makes it, makes it, uh, them at, uh, causes them to be at a disadvantage. And this is why they're at a disadvantage, because those that set the line uh, basically absorb those teams. They spend hours and hours and hours diving into the teams of which they're setting the lines for to understand all the different intricacies of what's going on in that team all the different advantages they might have in the game they're playing on that Sunday. Things as silly as the emotional state of the quarterback or who practiced well that week. And they have a massive advantage over those that would bet on these games because they spend hours and hours and hours uh, diving into these teams and investigating them. And sports gambling is not that much unlike life. Each and every one of us in this room is looking for an advantage. We want an advantage in this life so we might succeed. Maybe it's advantage at work. That you want to have a leg up, that you might get a promotion and succeed there. Maybe it's in your education, that you study, study constantly, so that you might have an advantage over your classmates at getting the better job. We're always looking for some advantage in life whether it's in our job, in our education, even in our children, in our families. We're always looking for an advantage. Well, this morning, Jesus is laying out an argument in this passage at why He is the greatest advantage you can have in life and life to come. And that's my main point this morning in your outline or in your bulletin, that Jesus is an advantage. Or advantage Jesus, I think, is what I titled this sermon. Because He's the best advantage that you can have. If you're looking for a leg up in this life, in this game of life, Jesus is an advantage to you. But before we dive into this passage, we need to understand kind of the context of what is going on here. It's kind of hard to step in and to preach, on a, you know, to come to a church and just preach because you're not preaching through the Bible consistently. You're just randomly grabbing passages. And so for help, to help you understand what's happening in this passage, let's, let's dive in, I guess, to the context of really what's happening before uh, Jesus gets into this denouncement and declaring. Jesus shows up on the scene a few chapters earlier. He's born of a virgin, and he's born into some stinky barn with just a few people to, to see. 
And from there, Matthew really accelerates the story of the Messiah to a point where he is ushered out into the wilderness to be tried by Satan. He's tempted three times. Uh, and he's tired and he's exhausted. And he's really tempted and succeeds at this temptation for you and I to really gain our righteousness. But that's another sermon. I won't go into that. And then, as an exhausted uh, young adult, he moves out and starts teaching and starts gathering people unto himself through his teaching and through his ministry. And then he gives the greatest sermon ever recorded, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about his kingdom and what his kingdom is going to be like and those that live in his kingdom, how they are to behave. If you want to know, if you want to hear a great preacher, just read the Sermon on the Mount. It's the best sermon ever preached and ever recorded. And from there, he moves away from the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down and starts his healing ministry. He starts healing all these people, blind people, raising people from the dead. And again, gathering all these people unto himself. Well, we would be remiss if we don't mention one, or a group of people that play a major part in Matthew's Gospel, and that's the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees at this time... Uh, uh, within the gospel, have a stronghold on society. Uh, They are at at advantage over everybody else because of what they proclaim and the authority that they have. And Matthew, if you read it through his gospel, is really setting up this battle between Jesus and the Pharisees. He's pitting them against each other. The Pharisees who have the authority and have the, the influence Uh, are being battled by Jesus, and Jesus is moving into the world and stealing or taking from them their stronghold and their authority in society. And the Pharisees are scrambling to gain back that authority and to gain back that control. They're losing people. And Matthew really does, uh, in in a beautiful way, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it's putting these two parties together and showing how Jesus is better than the Pharisees. That Jesus is an advantage to your life. That's where we've come. Now let's look at our passage. Uh, Look at verses 21 through 24. Jesus starts off our passage really by pronouncing judgment. Uh, He starts off this great argument of why he is an advantage by communicating the consequences if you deny Him. He's ultimately saying to deny Him is to be of no advantage to you. And He says it as He speaks this judgment. He is standing up and denouncing these cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And He's denouncing them because they experienced the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you look back up in verse 20, it says that most of his mighty works had been done within this region. This is by the northwest shore of Galilee. And Jesus spent a lot of the beginning of his ministry up in that area, up around this region. And these cities, these people in these cities, uh, had firsthand exposure to this person of Jesus, to what he was doing, to his teaching, to the miracles he was performing. In Matthew chapter 8, we learn of how... Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And then he moves on, and in the same chapter, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then in chapter 9, we see him raise this girl from the dead. And then he heals these, these blind men. 
and heals this mute. He's doing all this miraculous uh, events. He's causing all these miraculous events through his uh, ministry of healing. And yet these cities, the people in these cities, continue to deny him the Messiah, or the, the Messiahship, if you will. They continue to deny him. They continue to ignore who he really is. And Jesus moves in and preaches this denouncement or this judgment upon them because they refuse to acknowledge Him for who He really is. Moreover, why these cities are receiving this judgment from Jesus is because they knew that the Messiah, when He would come, would do things like He's doing. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6 says this, "...the eyes of the blind shall be opened." And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing of joy. These people in this, these Jewish cities in this Jewish region would have understood the Messiah by stuff like this happening. They should have recognized who he was, and yet they choose to deny him. They choose to ignore who he really is, and they do it to their own peril. And this judgment is not just a simple judgment. It's the worst judgment of all. I mean, look at what he's saying in this passage. Tyre and Sidon, two idolatrous cities, Gentile cities, uh, northern, I guess, yeah, in the northern region, Lebanon, above this this area in which Jesus is preaching. Uh, Their judgment on the day of judgment, Jesus says, will be more bearable than those in these cities. And even worse, Sodom, the great pinnacle of sexual immorality in all the Old Testament. Jesus says that the judgment that Sodom will experience on the day of judgment will be more bearable or more tolerable than the judgment that these cities will experience. I mean, Jesus is not pulling any punches for these cities. He's just not. He's upset, he's angry because he came to them in love, proclaiming through his actions and through his words that he is the one that they knew would be coming. He is the one that they knew of from the Old Testament and the prophecies of the Old Testament. The one that would come and take up their cause and rescue them from all this oppression. And he shows up on the scene and they continue to deny him. Only, again, to invite their own peril. Jesus comes in judgment. I think, kind of a side note to this passage, there's going to be levels of judgment. Uh, Different people are going to be judged more harshly based on their exposure to Jesus. And let that be a warning to us this morning. Do you believe, have you placed your faith in the person of Jesus Or have you placed your faith in the system of Christianity? Where is your faith this morning? Is it in a person? Or is it in a system? Because Jesus comes and says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not except through a a method. Or an organized uh, institution. Namely, the church.
Nobody likes to talk about judgment, especially me. But our passage addresses that this morning. And I want you to be warned. Do you know the person of Jesus this morning? Is he somebody that you rest in? Is it somebody that you have given your life over to and rely on him for everything? Or is he an afterthought? Or do you use him to benefit your life so that you might manipulate the world around you to work for yourself? Do you know the person of Jesus? Because this morning you're hearing of him. And if you don't receive him by faith, the day of judgment that's coming for all of us will be worse for you, says the passage. It says Jesus. We say it that way. Now, I want to stop here and um, kind of take a little rabbit trail. I feel like I have to because uh, I know some of you in here are thinking this. You know, when we deal with passages about judgment, questions inevitably come up about how could a good God be divvying out such harsh judgment on people He says He loves? And if you take that question, it ultimately funnels down into the issue of how can a good God send people to hell? And I have no doubt that those are, there are many of you in here that might be asking that question this morning. So it would be beneficial if we address that. And I think the reason we ask that question, the reason that many of my college students ask that question, is because they have a, misconce- uh, a misconception of what hell really is and why people go to hell. You see, they have the conception that somebody dies and goes before God. Maybe you have this conception. They die and they go before the God. And God, this great ogre in the sky, kind of recounts all the horrible things they did in their life. And yet he brings down this this verdict and says, you're guilty. And he kind of ushers them off to hell. Away, Away with you. You're going to hell. And that person stops and tries to repent of their sins and says, no, 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 no. I'm so sorry. Please be merciful to me. Please. I now understand that I am before you the great God. And I ignored you all uh, my whole life. But now I know that you exist and you're real. So please, please be merciful to me. Do not send me to hell. And this great ogre in the sky says, I'm sorry. It's too late. You had your chance. Away with me. And to hell you go. And that's the concept that we have or as the people that I talk to, my college students, and maybe some of you in here deal with this issue, of what God is like when He brings His judgment upon people. Um, the Bible would not, I guess, yeah, the Bible's not going to allow us to see hell that way. Tim Keller, in his book, A Reason for God, some of you have read it. I'd highly recommend it to you if you haven't. goes through the parable in Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. And he points out, not only him, but a lot of the commentators point out that the, that the rich man never asked, to leave heaven, uh, never asked to leave hell. All he does is he complains that he's there. And he asked, you know, send somebody to tell my brothers. You know, you didn't give us enough evidence. So if you would send somebody, you know, raise somebody from the dead and show them to my brothers, then they'll repent and believe. He never asked to leave hell. Why? 
Why does he not leave, ask to leave hell? Well, Tim Keller and many commentators believe it's because he's so self-absorbed. He's delusional. His focus is on himself and himself only. Keller puts it this way, Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on the trajectory into infinity. C.S. Lewis puts it even better, I think. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. People go to hell because they want to be there. People don't go to hell because God cast them there and they're in some repentant state. People go to hell because they want to be there. They don't want anything to do with God. They're self-consumed. They're self-deceived. Ultimately, they're isolated from everything around them because they're so focused on themselves. And when you're so self-consumed, you become addicted to yourself. And just like any any other addiction that we all experience, or some of us in here might be dealing with today, addiction will only lead to disintegration. Did I say that word? Disintegration. Disintegration. Yeah. They experience, uh, they disintegrate in some senses. That they're physically uh, falling apart because they're so self-absorbed and they're addicted to themselves and they're, they're delusional and self-absorbed and ultimately they lose um, their grip on reality is what happens. Keller in his book says this, when you lose all humanity, you're out of touch with reality. Listen to what he says. No one ever asks to leave hell because the very idea of heaven to them seems like a sham. Nobody's asking to leave hell. Those that go to hell and are headed to hell want to be there. They're self-consumed, they're isolated, uh, and they're self-delusional. Now let's move on. We're talking about how Jesus is an advantage to you. And our first point of this sermon is that to deny Jesus will be of no advantage to you. It's not only not an advantage to you because it brings judgment, it's not an advantage to you because it's laborious. It's burdensome. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, If you notice when I read this passage, I kind of said, come to me, and I said, come here. Uh, Jesus is not offering some uh, generic call. Jesus is not saying, open his eyes and arms and say, just come, come to me. You know, all you who are heavy laden and, you know, and burn some, come to me. Jesus is being very specific. The word there, uh, diota, is in an uh, imperative form. He's actually being very specific to who he's calling. He's saying, come here. You come here to me, and I will give you rest. Now, he's calling those that are laboring and heavy laden. The word there for labor is is, uh, kapayo, and to be heavy laden is uh, for ditso. Excuse me. Uh, Both these words uh, communicate something that's burdensome. communicates those that he's calling are fatigued and overburdened. 
And the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is what is burdening them? Why are they fatigued? Obviously, the people that he is calling haven't experienced rest in him. And so their life is identified with some kind of fatigue and burden. Well, the text doesn't tell us that. The text doesn't tell us why they're uh, laboring, why they're fatigued, and why they're heavy laden. So as I investigated, there are actually three options, I think, on why these people would be uh, laboring so hard with their life. First, Jesus could be calling those that are laboring and heavy laden, or could be offering a call to those that are generically dealing with sin in their lives, those that are burdened by sin, uh, sin that they experience in their own life, and sin that they see around them. He could be calling just, he could just throwing out a generic call. But as we said, as I argued, he's not doing that. He's not calling just those that are burdened by their sin and experience uh, struggles on a daily basis. Secondly, Jesus could be uh, calling out to those that are under the thumb of the Pharisees. After all, uh, we find this passage in the midst of this battle between the Pharisees and Jesus, the authority struggle that they're having. Jesus could be calling out to those that are under the thumb of the Pharisees and that are burdened by the laws that they have to obey. And their consciences are are guilt-ridden because they can't live up to what the Pharisees tell them they have to live up to. That's why they might be laboring, laboring hard to to be approved of by the Pharisees. Lastly, and this is the one I think is interesting uh, and the one that I tend to uh, resonate with, doesn't necessarily... I mean, this is who Jesus is calling. But Jesus could be calling those that oppose Him. Jesus is calling somebody that's... He's being specific in His call. Now, if you notice, I read verses 16 um, through 18 of the, the uh, previous pericope, or previous story. And it recounts those that are trying to uh, mar or smear Jesus' name. Those who are trying to discredit him publicly, saying things that he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. These Pharisees are out there trying to discredit Jesus publicly and to mar his name, to smear his name. And maybe Jesus is calling them and saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, by trying to uh, discredit me publicly knowing that they're overwhelmed by this task because they're not going to succeed at it. You know, Jesus is gaining followers faster than they are. And they're losing the battle. And they realize uh, that they'll never accomplish this goal of, being, um, of gathering more people than Jesus. The text is unclear of who these people that are laboring and heavy laden It could be any three of these. But the point is, Jesus is calling those that are laboring and heavy laden with something in their lives. Their lives are identified by labor. They're either, uh, and it's a result because they're either passively or actively denying Jesus in their lives. But to deny Jesus is going to be laborious, it's going to be hard because you're never going to reach a point where your body and your soul will be at rest. Because you're always trying to gain that next advantage. Um, 
Mike Kokoris, who wrote a book called uh, Evangelism, A Biblical Approach, recounts this story. And it's a story of when he's in a high school classroom. And he's having, he calls it a rap session. It's basically a question and answer period. And he opens it up and he lets them ask any question they want to ask. And he says, well, they give all the normal questions about who God is and all this different stuff. And this rap session or question and answer period is starting to wrap up. It's starting to be over. And this girl in the back raises her hand and says, you say that God is good, but why does he send people to hell? How can a good God send people to hell? And so he engages her with his different arguments and different uh, verses that he has about the character of God. And they go back and forth for about 15 minutes until it really erupts into an emotional argument. She gets really, uh, you know, she's fired up, you know, and so is he. And so he, he quenches the argument for the sake of everybody else, and the class is over, and the students leave. And he walks up to her afterwards, and he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for engaging you that, like that publicly. I should have never done that. But can I share something with you? And she says, yeah, sure, of course. And so he continues, he, he starts to go into the gospel presentation and starts sharing the gospel with her. And he gets to the point where he's talking about um, that we're all sinners, that we're all fall short of the glory of God. And this girl starts crying and weeping. And she cries out, she says, I need forgiveness. And he's, of course, intrigued. He says, why do you need forgiveness? She says, well, I've been in an adulterous relationship with a married man for the past three months. And he, again, communicates the, the forgiving love of Jesus. And right there in that spot, she prays to receive Christ. And he goes on in this illustration in his book and says this, The reason she did not believe in hell was because she was going there. In her heart, she knew she had sinned. Her conscience had condemned her. But rather than face the fact of her guilt, she simply denied any future judgment or future hell. People that are going to hell, people that are going to experience judgment, are going there because they choose to deny God. And their lives will communicate that. As you look at them, as they're tired, as they're exhausted as they're laboring harder and harder on a daily basis, their lies will communicate that they're going to hell. And it's pertinent of us to be in tune to those that are around us, to be so focused missionally to understand what is happening to those that are around me, to take the scalpel of questions and to engage people and ask them, what they're thinking, why they're doing what they're doing. You might have an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody who is ultimately headed for judgment and the worst kind. To deny Jesus will be at no advantage to you. Just like House in the, movie, in the TV show continues to deny his addiction to Vicodin. Continues to do it. He's denying the inevitable. And if you watch the TV series, you understand that last season, or the ending of last season, it caught up with him. He's delusional now. 
He's going through that cycle of losing his grip on reality. To deny Jesus will be at no advantage to you. Now that we've gotten through the, the fun part of this passage, let's start looking at well, how Jesus will be an advantage to you. He starts this in verses 25 and following. The first way that Jesus is going to be advantaged to you is because your salvation is not going to be reliant upon yourself. Look what he says in verse 27 and following. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus, in the very beginning of the second half of our passage, really is talking about how you might have peace with God how you might be experience redemption and how redemption is coming to those that aren't identified by worldly wisdom. He's coming to those that are weak. He's coming to those uh, that are little children, that their faith is struggling. And he says that their salvation ultimately would not be reliant upon them. Now, God created us in His image. And part of the great blessing of being created in God's image is that we seek out for truth. Uh, God has uh, given us a reasonable mind and a reasonable soul to search out this world for truth, to understand what is true about who I am as a person. Where did I come from? What is this life all about? And where am I going? And that's a great gift that we have as being created in the image of God. But Jesus, throughout all the scriptures, talks about truth is only found in God Himself, the author of truth. And the only way to know God Himself is to know His Son. And this is why Jesus enters into our world, that we might know the truth. Isn't that what He says in John 14, 9? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you want to know the truth, you've got to know Jesus. Just reinforcing the point this morning that if you want to know the truth, if you want to have an advantage in this life by knowing the truth and knowing the Father, you're supposed to rest in Jesus, to give your life over to Him. Now my point is, it's not reliant upon you. That's why it's a great advantage. I have an ongoing discussion with my son almost every Sunday morning. This morning we had it. I said, Parker, it's time to go to church. It's time to get dressed. You know? And he says, uh, I, know, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to church. Or he says something like that in broken English. And I said, Parker, don't, you know, Jesus loves you. We need to go to church and worship him. And this morning he looked at me and said, Jesus doesn't love me. He said, Jesus doesn't love me. You know, and... He's a two-year-old, and his favorite thing to say is, you know, say is no or in some negative you know, form. Uh, and it, 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 if I stop and reflect upon that, you know, my heart will be broken. As he says, I don't love Jesus, or Jesus doesn't love me. And I know it not to be true because he's, he's a covenant child. But he's saying it. And the great... Uh, peace that I have is that His salvation is not reliant on me as His Father. It, I'm not going to do anything with my Son, ultimately, that's going to change His heart. 
Now, I have responsibility to rear him in the Lord and to pray with him and teach him the Bible. But his salvation is based upon what God is going to do in his life. It's not a burden that I have to carry around because it's not mine to carry. He's a covenant child. And God is going to bring him to himself in due time. And it's not relying on me. What a great advantage that is in life to know that your salvation is not relying upon you. You can't screw it up. (laughs) As hard as you try, you cannot screw it up. If Jesus has chosen you and entered into your life and transformed you to be like His Son, it's not going to screw up. Your salvation is not relying on you. If you're here this morning and you're worried and you're scared and you're here because you're guilty, because of something you did this week or some thought you had, and you're afraid that God doesn't love you anymore, and you've lost your salvation, be encouraged this morning. Know that you have an advantage, that your salvation is based upon what Jesus did for you and nothing else, and you're not going to lose it. Secondly, how is Jesus an advantage to you? His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Look in verse 23, 29 and 20. Sorry, 29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is using this picture of a yoke. Now, I'm I'm sure some of you are familiar with a yoke, what a yoke is. It's kind of this massive piece of wood that's placed on the, the shoulders, excuse me, of an ox or oxen. And it's used to, uh, to put them in line and to steer them and to allow them to, uh, to carry some kind of burden, some kind of wagon, if you will. Uh, and the people that Jesus is speaking to would have known of this. They would have known of this word picture, this oxen or this yoke and this burden because they probably would have felt how heavy uh, a yoke would have been to place on these huge animals that till the ground or, or pull some kind of wagon. Moreover, they would have known about it because they probably would have known the Old Testament. Uh, listen to what uh, it says in Second Chronicles 10, verses 4 and 14. Right before the nation of Israel is split by Rehoboam, it says this, Your father Solomon made our, own, made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And then verse 14, King Rehoboam spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Not a great point in Israel's history. But the point is they would have known about this word picture that Jesus is making. This word picture of, of, of a yoke on others and, and how heavy it is. Now the question is, why is Jesus' yoke so light? Obviously these people are carrying around some kind of yoke, some kind of burden that they have in their lives. But Jesus comes and says, well, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is his yoke easy and why is his burden light? For you and I, or you and me, however you say it. (laughs) It's because he's carrying it for you. Jesus is carrying your yoke. The burden of being righteous, the burden of being perfect, the burden of never screwing up. Jesus is carrying that for you. You know, the only way you're going to know the Father and know the truth is if you're perfect. If you never screw up, and yet you all know emotionally 
and intellectually that you've screwed up. You've done something that you are not proud of. You've done something that you know, our society is not proud of. And you're burdened by that. It's the great yoke that you carry around. And yet Jesus is saying, take that yoke off you, or take that yoke off your shoulders and carry my yoke. Because it's easy. Because I'm carrying it for you. In this, we see what it really means to be united to Jesus. If this word picture is not working for you. If you're united to Jesus, you're united to Him in every way. And what Jesus did in living His life is He carried the yoke of the law. <laughs> he carried the yoke... There's a fly. He carried the yoke of the law. He was perfect in everything He did. And you can carry His yoke by faith, by inviting Christ into your life. His yoke is easy and His burden is light because He accomplished it for you. It's done. He's carrying it for you. What an advantage that is in our life. There's no doubt that these people that Jesus is talking to are probably struggling with some kind of self-esteem. I mean, obviously they're laboring, they're battling the Pharisees. uh, And their lives uh, are really disregarded socially. And maybe that's a burden to them. Uh, And I think that's a means of application to us this morning. Maybe you feel disregarded. Maybe you're carrying the burden of being significant in your job or in your life, or in your family, in your marriage. I don't know how to answer that question for you. Could that be a possibility? Absolutely. As males, we're constantly carrying that burden. We want to be significant. We want to mean. We want to have influence on the world. And it's a burden we carry. And if we don't accomplish that, we feel massively insecure. Jesus is saying this morning, if you want to feel significant, if you want to be valued, just gaze upon me. I'll show you what it means to be valued. I'll give my life for you. I'll live a perfect life for you. I'll serve you up to the very end, says John 13. I'll go through life being ridiculed, being uh, disregarded in society. And then I'll find myself uh, on some garbage heap, hanging on a tree, dying of exhaustion, Why? Because I love you. And I'm willing to serve you to the very end. If you want to know what significance is, look no further than Jesus and what He's done for you. But lastly, um, we get to the point of why Jesus is an advantage to you. Because He provides rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Anapanu is the word he's using there for rest in the Greek language. And it means really kind of uh, to step out of activity around you. It really kind of has the connotation of of an intermission. It's kind of funny that Tim Keller, when he he writes his book, he puts in an intermission. you know, to the rest that he's talking about really has that connotation of an intermission, of to step out of life, of the swirling world around you. 
Samuel Rodegast wrote a famous hymn that I think illustrates what he means by rest. Uh, and we all know it and we all sing it. And I want to read a couple verses to you to explain what Jesus means by this rest. He says this, Whate'er my God ordains is right, holy, will his, holy His will abideth. I will be still whate'er He does, and follow where He guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, wherefore to Him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and to Him I leave it all. Rodegast's words are so uh, beautiful, and they're so amazing when you sing them. And I think what he's explaining here is exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate. That you can be at rest. He's offering you a rest in a world that is swirling around you. Not to mention in a world that has an enemy, as Peter would say, that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour somebody. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you rest in that world. I'm going to cause your soul to be at peace. Rest that says, nothing in life comes my way that I cannot handle. Rest that allows us to face an unpredictable world and not always be reaching for the control button. Rest that gives our lives a calm even though the outside world is falling apart. A rest, as Jesus really gives us as uh, as a personal example, a rest that allows us to sleep soundly in a boat as the waves seemingly tear the vessel apart. Lastly, a rest that pierces through our emotions and through our intellect and to our wills, to the very core of who we are, and allows us to proclaim loudly with every fabric of our being, whatever my God ordains is right. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you rest in a world that is scary, in a world that can seek to harm you. I'm offering that to you this morning. Jesus is offering that to you this morning. Jesus has laid out an argument this morning in our passage of why He is a great advantage for you in life. Not only in this life now, but in life to come. And would you hear His warning, to deny Him will be of no advantage to you. But to accept Him will be of complete advantage to you. For those of you in here that don't know Jesus that are working through the claims of who this person is. Will this be the day of your salvation? Don't run from Him anymore. Your denial will only cause you pain and ultimately judgment. But those of you that are accept or accept Jesus this morning, would you know the great advantage that you have? That your salvation is not relying on you. And that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And lastly, your souls can be at rest. What would keep you from Him this morning? What, if anything, 
will keep you from him. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. And you've accomplished our salvation. You've done it. I believe you said it is finished. And you beg us to come to you. You specifically call us by name to come and to be at rest and to be at peace. Jesus, what an advantage you are that we have. The greatest advantage in this life that we could ever have is the person of Jesus. Would we leave here this morning knowing that and owning it as your people? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.